Hey, everybody. It's Bill Bennett. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, we got a lot coming up, a great discussion about America and the cultural civil war with John Gripp, author of the fabulous book uh, Old Abe about Lincoln, a pretty famous book now, too. But uh, first, we have to talk about this uh, large letter catastrophe called Afghanistan. Um, horrible, horrible situation. Just a few thoughts. One, let, let's clear out the Trump uh, responsibility for it. Uh, several presidents, I think, have been uh, lost on this issue um, and, and wrong. This policy that we have had for 20 years, uh, and yes, spent a trillion dollars and lost to 2,300 men, uh, is uh, has been a success on balance. Uh, why do I say that? For all the hate and complaining, this is uh, from my friend Seth Leibson and your friend. For all the hate and complaining about the uh, about the U.S., uh, notice that uh, all the good of the past 20 years uh, that has occurred. Schools have opened. Uh, women go to school. Uh, they study real things. Um, religious rights and freedom are respected. Uh, they disappeared today or yesterday. It wasn't a great thriving democratic nation and the nation building, I think, was a mistake. But um, it was a, um, you know, an equilibrium. And maybe most important, they didn't attack us for 20 years. Remember, that attack on us was launched from Afghanistan uh, using, yes, guys from Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. But it was launched from Afghanistan. There are now tons of questions uh, that President Biden must answer. But let me get to the Trump thing. President Trump wanted to get troops out. I think that was a mistake. Uh, he wanted to withdraw the troops. Amazingly, 2,500, 3,000 troops were able to maintain this equilibrium to keep the Taliban from running the country. The Taliban is now running the country because the 2,500, 3,000 troops are gone. President uh, Trump uh, had uh, Secretary of State Pompeo go to Doha in uh, Qatar to meet with the Taliban. It was also proposed, I don't know if he did, that the Taliban be invited to Camp David. God forbid, didn't happen. But there was a meeting in Doha and an agreement and maybe handshakes, don't know, with the terrorist organization that we would be out. In May of 2021, Biden comes in and uh, changes it and says, well, I was stuck with the Trump policy. Wasn't stuck with this Trump policy any more than he was stuck with the Trump border policy, which he reversed. The Trump oil policy, pipeline policy, which he reversed. Uh, the Trump uh, policy on uh, crime uh, and sympathetic uh, to the defend, uh, defund the police movement, which, uh, you know, was a reversal of, of Trump policy. So he could have reversed anything he wanted. He wasn't obligated. But he said, no, we'll get him out and we'll get him out now. Now, General Keene believes, uh, Jack Keene believes that, uh, you know, the, the Trump withdrawal would have had conditions. We would not have withdrawn until things were in place and people had been evacuated and you didn't have the scene. We're all watching on television. Uh, Jack Keane also said, wait till the winter, because in the winter, Taliban withdraws to Pakistan uh, and they're not fighting. And that's the time if you're getting out to get out. Again, I don't think we should ever get out. You know, we have troops in Japan. We have troops in uh, South Korea, East Africa, the Philippines. That's what they're there for. Okay, uh, you know, a few kind of absurdities. So what do we do with the refugees? Where do they go? What can we do? You know, I, I, I snarkily suggest to take the refugees and um, fly them to Mexico, border of Texas and Mexico, and then let them just walk over the border. All this visa, all these papers they have to just get them into Mexico and they walk over. Get these people out, for God's sakes, who helped us. Get them out. Again, I come back to Joe Biden uh, in Europe, that uh, the G7, uh, and then later I was meeting with Putin. He said, you know, these these countries, you know, won't, won't behave terribly because they'll be held up to a scorn and derision by the world community. And and and, and he ha had the same thing about Taliban. They want respectability. Uh, well, they really don't. They really don't care. They're murderous and they're fanatics. 
They don't care about world respectability. But ironically, even though they don't care, they're getting it. They've been recognized now. The government, uh, Taliban government in Afghanistan has been recognized by China. Russia will soon follow. They're getting pretty much everything. Anyway, once again, there's a difference between an intention to leave, which Trump wanted to do, which I think was wrong, and how you do it. And how you do it is what Biden did and he owns this thing. What are they thinking in other places where our troops are? You know, what are they thinking in uh, Taiwan? What are they thinking in, in Korea? Uh, what are they thinking in Japan? What are they thinking in uh, the Middle East? You know, can you trust the United States? Or can you just wait them out? Apparently, you can just wait them out. This is catastrophic. It's terrible. I would not be shocked if we see more um, terrorist attacks launched from Afghanistan, but more likely sooner, just this energizes terrorists around the world. They say, hey, the United States is defeated, the United States is weak, let's go get them. So from all sides and all corners. That's my two cents. A lot of other two cents. What's interesting here is the media has finally turned on Biden, at least a lot of it. Pretty Some pretty tough reporting on Biden from MSNBC and CNN. Okay, Claude, that's, uh, that's all I got. Let's go to that interview. Great interview with John Cripp. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. John T.E. Cribb is a dear friend, colleague, worked with me on many projects. Uh, the Book of Virtues, we're working on the Book of Virtues 30th anniversary edition right now. His idea was the basis for the book, The American Patriots Almanac, uh, and we worked together on that and many other projects. But he is, uh, in his own right, the author of Old Abe, which is a great book, a little controversy around it. Well, John might want to rehearse that with our audience. It's kind of a funny story about how you got blocked out, or at least temporarily, on that book. But it is a wonderful account of Abe Lincoln, and it is uh, Lincoln's life, or part of Abe Lincoln's life, uh, told through uh, the lens of memory and conversation. And you uh, hear Abe talking to people, family, friends, colleagues, political enemies. Uh, and it's an extraordinary book. And Mike Pence, I think, said it was the best book on Lincoln he ever read. Do I have that right? Yes, he did. He, um, But he was following in the footsteps of, of somebody else, I have to say. Uh, it was very kind to make the same comment about the book. And that was uh, uh, yours truly, Bill Bennett. But, yeah, I got a call from Mike Pence, um, who I don't know. Just out of the blue, I got a call from him uh, the Monday after uh, the election last year. And he said, John, I'm a huge Lincoln fan. You know, I'm from Indiana where Lincoln grew up. wrote my college thesis on him. And he said, I just had to let you know, I finished reading Old Abe last night. And I had to track you down and let you know it's the, the best book about Lincoln I've ever read. And I've read several books about Lincoln. And uh, so it's very, very uh, nice of him. And he followed up with a note uh, to the same effect. And then the the controversy you you mentioned uh, just briefly. The publisher, of course, uh, used that in a uh, advertisement they put together for the uh, the social media, along with the quote from you, and it got uh, Facebook rejected it. And it's just a sign of the times. You were too politically hot. Is that it? Able? To, well, <laughs> yeah. We that's we wondered was is Lincoln too politically hot? Because this was about a time when you know statues were being torn down of Lincoln, that kind of thing. But. Uh, as it turns out, with uh, and actually there was a Washington Post reporter that that looked into it and kind of badgered Facebook about it and got them to admit that uh, they turned they turned down the ad because of the Mike Pence quote. They just didn't they didn't like Mike Pence, I guess. Um, so uh, Lincoln Lincoln was tip, was the ad about Lincoln was banned on Facebook. Um, describe your book, Old Abe, which has sold very well, and gotten wonderful reviews. And I want to say something about that in a minute, quite, quite apart from the vice president, former vice president's reviews. How would you 
three sentences describe the book? It's a historical novel, but it's a very accurate historical novel. It, it, it's a story of the last five years of Lincoln's life. So it starts with his nomination for the presidency, and then you're just at his side every page as he goes through the Civil War and his, his presidency. And I took uh, great pains to make it an accurate portrayal of those last five years. Uh, so the hope is that you walk with him, you get to know him as a walking, talking, you know, breathing fellow, not just that stiff image we see on the penny or the, uh, the $5 bill. Now, one of the interesting things about this book, uh, Claude, I would mention to you and the audience is that, you know, books get reviewed and, you know, very successful books may get 50, 80, 100, 200 reviews. Uh, how many reviews did you tell me you got on this book, written reviews? Well, it's, yeah, I, and I am a, although I've worked with you on several books and uh, this is my first fiction effort. It's my first novel. So I'm a neophyte when it comes to that. And uh, we just passed our 500th review on Amazon. Amazing. It's a huge yeah. number. Well, for for, yeah, for a book from a small press like this, it's a very uh, respectable number. When we first started out, I thought, gosh, how am I going to get to 20 reviews? So, and, you know, of course, big best-selling books get in the thousands, but uh, we're, uh, we're the, the, you can tell from the rate of reviews that people are reading it and uh, are spreading the word about it. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. Let's talk about old Abe himself in his own words and uh, where we are as a country. But what, what was Lincoln's estimation of the most important thing about this country, which he wanted to see endure? What was it in the founding that he thought, you know, carried on to his time 100 years later, almost 100 years later, and should carry forward into the future? What's the bedrock? What are the bedrock principles? Well, to Lincoln, the bedrock uh, was always the Declaration of Independence. That was his favorite founding document and the one he went back to again and again. Um, remember the Gettysburg Address, he starts out by saying four score and seven years ago. Um, and he gave that speech in 1863. So if you do the math, you just subtract 87 from 1863, you, it takes you straight back to 1776. So that that was the founding. That was the bedrock uh, for Lincoln. And those great principles laid down uh, at the founding and the Declaration of Independence, that we're all created equal and all endowed by our creator with the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Uh, that to Lincoln was really what America was all about. And he talked about it again and again. So where are we today? I mean, uh, um, that bedrock principle, I mean, we're in this incredible, you know, controversial time about America and the division and race. And Lincoln certainly didn't ignore race. No. Uh, and uh, and racial division. And he speaks specifically to this. Yes. In regard to those uh, those old men of the of the of the Declaration, right? He does more than once. One is a, a speech that he gave in July of 1858 in Chicago. And this was right before the Lincoln Douglas debates uh, began to, to gear up later that summer. It's not too much, Lincoln. I might just read a couple paragraphs from that that speech because it's interesting because he he goes to some issues uh, that I think we are. Sure. Confronting today. One of those issues, I think, is that there are there seem to be people in this country who today uh, who are feeling very disconnected from the founders um, and even are, you know, turning their noses up at, at the founders. I worry a little bit, Bill, you know, we're, we're five years out from the 250th anniversary of this nation's uh, founding. 
And those of us who are old enough to remember, remember back in 1976, I, I remember the bicentennial just being such a, you know, time of celebration. And I wonder five years from now, if things don't change, what it's, what it's going to, you know, yeah. it's going to be, it's gonna be a time of teeth gnashing. Um, but at any rate, I think it's, it, it, it helps to read Lincoln on this. He says, um, this is in July of 1858. He says, it happens that we meet together once every year sometime about the 4th of July. And he says, uh, he says, if you'll indulge me, I want to just talk for a minute about, about why we do that. And he says, when we run our memory back over the pages of history to 1776, he says, we find a race of men living that day whom we claim as our fathers and grandfathers. He says they were iron men. Isn't that a great phrase? He's speaking of the founders. He says they were iron men. They fought for the principle that they were contending for. And we understand that by what they did, it has followed that the degree of prosperity that we now enjoy has come to us. And he says, we hold this annual celebration to remind ourselves of all the good done in the process, this process of time, how it was done and who did it and how we are historically connected to it. And we go from these meetings in a better humor with ourselves, and we feel more attached to one another and more firmly bound to the country that we inhabit. So Lincoln's saying, yeah, there are good reasons to celebrate. And then he goes on to say, though, that there are people who at that time, I mean, he's not he's not talking about slavery at this point, but you're talking about other Americans um, who may not feel a connection to the founders. So he says he says there there are people who are in our country, who are not descendants of these men by blood, especially he's talking about immigrants to the country. He said people have come from Germany or Ireland or French or Scandinavia. And he says uh, they aren't of, they aren't descended from those men by blood. But he says if they, and I'm quoting Lincoln now, he says, if they look back through the history uh, to trace their connections uh, with those days, uh, they find they have no connection uh, by blood. But he says that when they read the Declaration of Independence, they find that those old men say, we hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal. And then they feel that moral sentiment taught in that day evidences their relation to those men. And that sentiment is the father of all moral principles in them. And they have a right to claim it as though they were the blood of the blood and the flesh of the flesh of those men who wrote the Declaration. And so they are. Lincoln says, this is the electric cord in that declaration that links the hearts of patriotic and liberty-loving men together and will link those patriotic hearts as long as the love of freedom exists in the minds of men throughout the world. Uh, so Lincoln is saying that, you know, we are all descendants of that founding generation, of those iron men. It doesn't matter where we're from, where our families came from, what color we are. Uh, we have inherited those sacred principles, and that's what makes us Americans, and that's what unifies us, or should unify us. John, that electric cord, that uh, link, all men, slavery. Right. Lincoln was in the midst of a civil war. Yes. Were those, yeah, heading uh, into uh, yeah. When he said that. Yes. Yeah. Right. But then, but then civil war comes, right. and that was his presidency. Yeah. Um, how do you explain to the descendants of slaves, that that cord, that link connects them as well to those iron men. And, and one of the reasons I say that is some, both white and black, have not only not regarded those founders as iron men, but have thought them evil and wicked and yes. done everything to defame them, uh, deface them, tear down their statues, quite apart from you know just sort of liberal ignorance. Serious question about slavery. How could you have salute these iron men 
and all the greatness they did while you around you is slavery. And when Lincoln said that, slavery was all around at least large parts of the country. Right. And he was obviously uh, very aware of that and very concerned about it, to say the least. Um, and as, as we know, uh, uh, history would, would leave it to him to, to deal with it. Uh, Lincoln argues uh, that uh, the founding was an imperfect founding, of course, uh, because it does, uh, when the, the founders set up the country, uh, they, they allowed this, this original sin to persist, this, this sin of slavery, which was in direct conflict with the ideals in the Declaration. And Lincoln does not ignore that at all. Uh, but Lincoln says that it's clear that they did it only out of, he says, necessity is the word that he used. They didn't, they didn't like it. Um, but Lincoln, Lincoln says that, uh, look, when they broke away from England, uh, there was a, a lot on their plate. Uh, they were declaring independence. Uh, they were getting ready to go to war against one of the greatest powers on earth, maybe the greatest power on earth. And then they had the task of setting up this new country. Uh, and they knew that if they tried to deal with slavery then and there all at once, it would just be too much. It would break the country apart at that time. Um, Lincoln in another speech, he compares slavery to a cancer uh, that's in the body, and he says that the founders knew that that this cancer had to be removed from the body, but to cut it out all at once uh, immediately uh, would cause the patient to bleed to death. And so uh, what the founders did was when they set up the country uh, in the Declaration and then in the Constitution, uh, which, which legalized slavery for a while, uh, they laid down markers those principles that they lay down in the Declaration, especially, that we're all created equal, that we're all in, endowed with those, those rights, those liberties, all of all men. Uh, and Lincoln says it, they put down the promise that this country was going to move toward those rights and freedoms uh, for everyone, including the slaves. And once they secured their independence in the founding, that uh, the idea was that the country would move uh, toward expanding those rights and freedoms to everyone. And that's what this country has done. And sometimes uh, it's been, hasn't been pretty. And there have been, you know, sometimes it's been two steps forward, one step back. Um, but Lincoln viewed the uh, founding as a glorious start. It was not, it wasn't a perfect founding. There's no doubt about it, but it was a glorious start. Uh, remember, this is the first country in history founded on these ideals that, that men should govern themselves, people should govern themselves, and that we're all created equal and that all people should be free. Um, so it was a glorious beginning, uh, and, but, it was a, but it was a promise. It was a down payment. John, uh, on this promise, what, wasn't there a specific date or time or period of time uh, actually even written down when, when the founders said slavery would end? Yeah, well, they put a, there was a time put down for the ending of the, um, the slave trade. Um, and then, of course, the international slave trade, and that was written into the Constitution. And uh, they took steps immediately. And Lincoln, uh, in another speech, uh, laid out all this, um, demonstrating that the founders from the very beginning uh, were hostile to the idea of, of slavery. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them, and wanted it to go away. Um, they ensured right away that slavery would never go into the Northwest Territory, um, it's one of the earliest, you know, actions in the Republic. Uh, so Lincoln, as I say, his understanding of the founding uh, was that it was this glorious beginning that, that set down these principles and these markers for 
all generations to come, not just here, but but all over the world. The founders made the promise. Lincoln enunciated it, took it another generation, another, what, 80 years, as you said. And then others picked up on it, right? Frederick Douglass, yes. Martin Luther King, I don't know, others. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Um, Frederick Douglass, the great orator, um, who, uh, who became, he and Lincoln became uh, important allies in this, this struggle. And it was it was uh, it was in some ways all an uneasy relationship because Douglas, as you can imagine, was often impatient and thought Lincoln yeah. was moving too slowly. Yeah. Um, but came to greatly, greatly admire. As a matter of fact, just let me just digress for a second. One of my favorite stories about those two men is uh, Lincoln uh, when he gives his second inaugural address in March of 1865. Of course, very near the end of his life, um, Douglas is there in the audience uh, outside of the Capitol listening. And that's the great address where, you know, Lincoln says with malice toward none, with charity for all, uh, we need to, the nation needs to move forward. And uh, after it, the speech was over later on uh, that, that evening, that day, there was a great, there was a big reception in the white house and uh, Douglas comes and tries to get in and he stopped at the doors of the white house uh, because he's black and they won't let him in. And uh, a couple of people realize this is happening and they, they send word to Lincoln in this very crowded room and at the White House. And Lincoln says, in a, in, in right away, he says, let him in. And so Douglas comes in and as he's crossing the room, Lincoln says in a very loud voice, here comes my friend Douglas, you know, to make sure everybody hears that. And yeah. Douglas comes up to Lincoln and, and, and Lincoln says, what did you think of my speech? And uh, Douglas kind of demurs and says, oh, Mr. President, you don't need to know what I think of it. And Lincoln says, no, no, you're I, you're the man I want to know. What did you think of it? And, and uh, Douglas says, Mr. Lincoln, that was a sacred effort. He says a sacred effort. It's a wonderful a sacred story. effort. Yeah. Uh, you know, Douglas uh, gave a very famous speech about the Declaration of Independence and about Fourth of July. Yes. Yes. Um, in 1852 in Rochester, uh, New York. And he uh, he was pretty caustic in a lot of ways and obviously was not happy about the freedoms that that black people enjoyed in this country. Um and he said, I'll just, he says, um, I'll read just a little bit of it from you, just a couple of sentences. He says, fellow citizens, he says, pardon me, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today on the 4th of July? And he says, what have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the principles of political freedom and natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? So Frederick Douglass, yeah. too, is looking straight to the Declaration of Independence. And he says, uh, he says, the blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. Uh, so Douglass, Douglas too, recognized the, the brilliance of the founding, and he recognized the brilliance of that promise. But, of course, he also uh, recognized in a very, very real way that that promise had not yet been extended to millions and millions of Americans. And he was going to fight hard for the next several years to help uh, lead the way in, in securing that promise. Fair enough, right? Fair enough, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. It's fair enough. But it's also, uh, I think, important to recognize that Frederick Douglass, even in, in those times, even facing what he was facing, was not. Uh, disparaging the founders in that he was not saying right. we need to throw it all out. It was a rotten, you know, rotten thing altogether. What he was saying was that brilliant promise uh, needs to be uh, uh, now it's time to extend them 
that promise over time, overdue time to extend it. Uh, to yeah, well, there's an analogy often written that, that you know it was the check that was written, right. and it needs needs now to be cashed or deposited, whatever whatever one wants to say, right? Right. Lincoln spoke of as of, as it being a promise, and of Prom- course, yeah. Uh, and then of course Martin Luther King and his great great speech at the Lincoln Memorial. Here we you know we come back to Lincoln. It all it all comes full circle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that he gives in 1863. He says he says in a sense he says we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. He said when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent word of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise to all men that all men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So he is on the he's on the exact same page uh, with Abraham Lincoln and and Frederick Douglass on this. So the line goes from the Iron Men of the founding through Lincoln, Douglas, others, King. Right. But King is in ill repute now in the minds of and words of many uh, black leaders in America. The, the whole critical race theory and yes. systemic racism, it seems to me, is the opposite of that promissory note about all men, all men created equal, treat all men the same. We all know that all men weren't treated the same. We all know about slavery, legacy of slavery. Some of us know about Tulsa. There's a denial going on, and it's quite popular in university campuses and elite circles, that it's always been a lie. And King's dream, where you'll be judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin, which is what the founders ultimately wanted, what Lincoln wanted, what Douglas wanted, what King wanted, is not what many advocates want today. They want color of the skin. They want that to rule. And right now, you know, for many, many years, color of your skin was white, you ruled. And if you're black, you were ruled. Now, if uh, your skin is black, you are special, privileged, advantaged, uh, given more space, more opportunity. And if you're white, you should be ashamed of yourself. I may be overstating it, but this is this is a reversal of that electric cord, isn't it? It sure is. And it's so ironic because Lincoln in his day was arguing that slavery was a reversal of that electric cord. And not only slavery itself, but the arguments that were being made in that day to defend it. Uh, the arguments that he took on in the great Lincoln-Douglas debates where uh, Stephen Douglas was arguing arguing for what he called the, the doctrine of popular, popular sovereignty, which was that, you know, let, let each state decide whether they want slavery or not. Lincoln argued uh, in 1858, going into the Civil War, uh, that the arguments being made by the proponents of slavery, they were in direct opposition to the spirit of 70, 1776, as he put it. He said they are antagonists. Stephen Douglas uh, and those great Lincoln-Douglas debates was arguing uh, that the Declaration of Independence was not made for all people. It was it was set there only for white European males, basically is what he was saying. Right, um, right. And that, that people should, in each state, should be able to decide whether or not they, they wanted slavery. And Lincoln said, no, no, that, that, that those ideas cannot exist side by side with the ideas of 1776. Yeah. And here we are right. all this time later. And I think if Lincoln were here today, he would say the exact same thing about critical race theory, which encourages people to look at each other through the eye, through the eyes of race um, and not 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 judge people by the content of their character, but in fact, judge them by the color of their skin is what critical yeah. race theory is is teaching. And Lincoln, I think, would stand up today and say that is that idea is in direct opposition 
to the principles laid down uh, in 1776. And these these two viewpoints cannot live together, uh, not if we're going to be the, the, the country that the founders hoped that we would be. What you just said reminded me of another book, if you don't mind sharing the, the promotion here, John, and that's Harry Jaffa's Crisis of the House Divided, which George Will said, and I, I agree, it's one of the best political books, books about American political philosophy. And he talks, focuses on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. There's a line in there that goes something like this, back and forth and up and down uh, the Midwest, uh, Lincoln and Douglas debated the foundational principles of the American Republic. And Lincoln was saying, you cannot coexist. You can't vote in slavery because it violates the fundamental principle. So popular sovereignty doesn't work. Uh, there's some things you leave to popular vote, popular sovereignty, but not uh, not the sacred, the sacred principle. So we've moved toward today from the founders Lincoln to today. How do you how would you say to some say a young black person who's been hearing all about systemic racism and so on that that electric cord has extended? How would you say, no, it's not a racist country? How would you prove that or argue that today, John? Well, I think that to convince people of that, they have to know a little history. Um, they have to be taught history uh, in school and, and in other places, because if you if you don't know any history of, of this country, it's easy to convince people of of things that aren't true. Uh, but if you take a look back at the country as it stood, certainly 150 years ago, but but 50 years ago, um, I, I don't see how you can deny that there's a an uneven but but still uh, certain movement toward the founders' vision. Um, and Lincoln, you know, he said we can't expect the founders to have been perfect people. He actually, in that, that, that speech in Chicago, he quoted the Bible where he said, um, Jesus said, as your father in heaven is perfect, be ye also perfect. And Lincoln says, look, we all know that, that God knows that we, we aren't perfect and we can't be perfect. Uh, but he said that what he wants us to do is aim toward perfection and get as close as we can get. That's the best we can do. And he said that's the, the founders did the best they could at the time. Uh, but again, they put down these glorious markers, these glorious goals that this country has over time moved toward. And, I, you know, I tell my own two daughters uh, when they hear all this talk of uh, systemic racism and, you know, how awful the country is, which you, if you listen to a lot of the press, you boys, that's the message that's coming out loud and clear and on social media, too. I tell them, just look around you. Um, what do you see? You know, what is what is the evidence of the systemic racism? Because you hear a lot of people throw the term around, but they don't give a lot of specifics um, uh, about it. Now, listen, I know that 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 some people uh, run up against racism in this country, certainly more than others. And when, you know, when Tim Scott says that he's been yeah. stopped several times by police officers uh, simply for driving down Dri the road, dri I believe driving it. Well, driving well black, right, yeah. I, I, I believe him. And there is no doubt uh, that, that there's still racism around and, and there, you know, there always will be. I think there's something in the in human nature uh, that leads to that kind of, of attitudes toward people who are different from the way we are. But, um, where is the country that offers more opportunity yeah, yeah. to minorities? Where where is that country? Yeah, I've been saying that there. I've been saying, you know, we got this border problem. Why would all these people of color 
want to come into a society which is so systemically racist. Yes. Why do they risk life and limb and walk 200 miles yes. to get in here? Yeah. Such a bad place. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the empirical evidence, I mean, just the statistics, the rise of, uh, you know, the black middle class and so on. I said on TV not long ago, I said the success sequence, and it works for uh, blacks and whites and Hispanics and everybody. If you live in poverty, but you fulfill three conditions, your odds at living twice the poverty level are 90%. Those three are one, finish high school. Two, get a job or marry someone who has a job, good job, decent job. And three, don't have children before you get married. You do those three things and you're likely, 90% likely or better than 90, to live at twice the poverty level or better. That's pretty good. Right. That's pretty good. That's the definition of upward mobility. And that's still the case. And we're not talking about that much at all in our political discourse, are we? Um, I worry that we're really talking about the wrong things. There's all this, this talk about systemic uh, racism, when I think the true problems are uh, some of the things that you just mentioned, that uh, how many kids are, are growing up in All right, yeah, you, broken homes. You, you, don't, you don't want to use the phrase because you want to give it to me, but I'm talking about systemic fatherlessness. Yes. And yes. That, that's out there. White and black and right. Hispanic. Destruction of the family and the destruction of the family by the culture, not by the black community or the white community, by the culture, by government. I mean, uh, as Bob Woodson would teach us, uh, the 1776 Project, black families were pretty strong in the early part of this century, even under, you know, the lack of delivering on that promise, you know, looming under right. in a society that hadn't declared uh, its commitment to equality legislatively yet. So, um, so, so yeah, I think that's right. I want to, I want to talk about the country now, uh, and, and, and go in a different direction. Uh, I remember, uh, Lincoln sitting there waiting for reports about the war, right? And early on, these reports are pretty gloomy, correct? Yes, they were very gloomy. Yes. Very gloomy. And he's the guy who's given to melancholy right. occasionally anyway, right? Yes. So he's sitting there waiting for reports. So did he have a, did he keep an optimistic perspective on the country and the future of the country? Did he worry whether this country would endure, long endure? Did he believe we'd get through this dark, horribly, you know, bloody period, brother fighting brother. What was his perspective then, early, middle, late? Well, I think I think going into the war, uh, he, he definitely thought that we would get through it. I, I think, to be honest, Lincoln probably underestimated uh, the, the seriousness, seriousness of the situation as far as the South breaking away. Um, he, when he was elected and the Southern states were talking about uh, breaking away, which they started to do right after he was elected, but, but he he said, you know, the Southerners have too much got common, good common sense to actually leave the country and start a war. Boy, he, he, you know, he found out differently. Um, so I think, but going into the war, I think he, he had high hopes that, that, uh, and even after the South broke away and uh, the fighting started, he had hopes that if, you know, given a little bit of time, things would, would settle down and people would come back together. And then once the war really got going, I think, in all honesty, there were there were times when he, he did wonder, are we going to make it? As a matter of fact, when the South won Bull, Bull Run, Washington went into a panic. They A lot of people were convinced that, that within a matter of hours, Southern forces were going to be pouring across the Potomac River yeah, and yeah, the government yeah. capital. How far was, away is Bull Run? How far away is Bull Run? 30 um, miles? Yeah, just very, very close. Yeah. I mean, they could hear the, they could, in, in D.C., they, 
they could hear the the cannon firing, you know, yeah, going wow. across the hill. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, as the war went badly, I think Lincoln. There were times when he he despaired, and you know, the, the um, if you go look at the Gettysburg Address, what he's really doing is telling people why they had to keep fighting on through this awful, awful war. And Lincoln um, uh, tells them, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing all this, but you know, Lincoln uh, knew that the country was still very, very young. Um, and that this great experiment in self-ruling democracy that the founders had started was still uh, being was still unproven, and it was being tested very hard in the eyes of the world were on this nation to see what was going to happen. And Lincoln knew that for the great sweep of human history, most human beings had lived without much freedom. They lived under the rule of kings or tyrants or emperors. Or some historians estimate that that yes. around yes. John yes. Lincoln was born, you know. Three quarters of the world was held in bondage of some some kind themselves. They were slaves or or indentured servants or serfs or you know something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and the world had been waiting for yeah. centuries for this. And so Lincoln was very concerned that if yeah. uh, if the North lost this war and the Union fractured, this experiment would 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 go would go away. And 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 this continent would look would turn out to look like Europe or South America did at the time, just a bunch of smaller countries, you know, maybe republics and names only. Yes. And so that's why he argues they have to keep fighting to preserve those great principles and that, that promise right. that the founders put down. And that's why at the end of the Gettysburg Address, he says they have to keep fighting, said the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from this earth. He doesn't say from this country. He says from this earth, because he knows what's at stake. That, that, that what's at stake is the hope of freedom for millions of people um, around the earth. Right. And that's why in another place, as you know well, he calls America the last best hope of earth. We shall mainly lose or nobly save this last best hope of earth. 1863, I think. Yeah. What about now? As a student of American history and of Lincoln, and as someone I've known a long time, you're not given to melancholy. What do you think the prospects are? Now, Lincoln says somewhere, you know where, I don't remember. I remember the lines. I don't remember where they came from. As a nation of free men, we live forever or die by suicide. Yeah, that was a, one of the early, early speech he gave in uh, 1837 in Springfield, Illinois, known as the Young Men's Lyceum speech. Lyceum, um, and okay. Mm-hmm. He again, he says, uh, he again addresses some issues that we're still facing today. Um, there had been a, there was a, a lot of lawlessness and disregard for the law right. going on right. at the right. time. There had been a lot of uh, riots and uh, oh, at we any rate, seen any of that. No, no. And Lincoln says, um, he says, you know, if this country's ever going to be defeated, it's not going to be by some great transatlantic power that comes over and, and defeats the military. Militarily, he says it's going to come from within. He says, if we, uh, if, if this country is going to come to its, uh, its end, he says, we ourselves must be its author and finisher. Um, and he was concerned about, at that time, a loss of respect for the rule of law. And, a, and of course, a loss of respect for the founding, uh, our founding principles, this, this promise that the, uh, the founders uh, put down. And bring it back to today, that does worry me today. I mean, there are a lot of things I, I worry about with this country these days. And, you know, we can make a long list. Uh, but one is that I, I worry that, uh, you know, we're, we're drifting away uh, from a true respect for and knowledge of our founding uh, principles. And that leads to uh, partly to a, a loss of respect for the law and for law enforcement. And it, 
it leads to a, a breakdown in national unity. Um, and I, I, I think back also on that, that great speech that, that Ronald Reagan gave, his farewell address, remember, where he talks about yeah. the, very, yeah. the very last thing he told the nation as president. In that farewell address, he said, you know, the farewell addresses have a, have a history, a, a, a long kind of tradition of giving warnings. And he, his warning was exactly to this, this topic. He said, we, you know, he said, when I grew up, we, we just kind of uh, almost, we inherited a knowledge of, of our, these founding principles and a respect for them. He said it was almost, I think he said it's like, it was like breathing it in, in the air. We breathed it in and we learned it in school. We learned it from our neighbors and the cop down the street. Remember, he says we need an informed patriotism, and he's called yep. for Americans to sit around the, the dinner table and talk about uh, the, this nation's great, great history, um, and it's founded. And uh, I think Reagan was a little bit worried about that on the way out, although I think he thought he had re- helped reignite uh, that informed patriotism. And now, now, you know, all these years later, um, I don't know, sometimes I, when I see what's going on in the political landscape, I, I worry about that. Do you think we survive? I'll be honest. I think that this uh, critical race theory is so poisonous and has moved so quickly and so fast. Uh, this is if we don't confront this right away and uh, expose it to the lie that it is, we will not be the same America. I mean, my faith in America, I think of Barbara Jordan, the great black congressman from Texas. My faith in the Constitution is whole. My faith in America is whole. But, you know, this is, I want it to recover and be strong again and optimistic. And wonder as you do, John, what uh, 2026 will be 250th, right? Yes, 250th. Somewhere, uh, I had it and I lost it. Adams writes to someone about this experiment. Do you know what I'm talking about? And says, I think this, this American experiment can last, John Adams writes. I think we can last 150 years. That would have taken us yeah. to 1926. Yeah. Wow. Right. But, you know, they say in the Federalists that, you know, the lives of most countries are are short and with terror or monarchy or dissolution or suicide, cultural suicide. People stop believing in what the country is. I I, I don't mean to go on. Let's come back to your view. Uh, Schooled as you are, as well as anyone by by Abe Lincoln. If If he could be dark and despairing and then optimistic in the Civil War, why can't you be more optimistic? That yeah, was a so bad that, time, right? Yeah, and that's a and that's a great that's a great point. I mean, if we got out of that, we can get out of this. No, we can get we can yes, we can, and uh, and and hopefully we will. And there's still when you know when I look around, there is so much opportunity in this country for for people. Uh, it doesn't matter what your your race is or your background. It is just amazing how much opportunity uh, still exists in this country. And I know that some people would argue me with, with, with me about that and say things like, oh, no, systemic racism keeps keeps people down. I, I just flat out disagree with that. Um, I think there's tremendous opportunity for people who do the kinds of things you were talking about a minute ago. Uh, but I do think that we have some work to do ahead of, of us on, on all kinds of fronts, obviously. Uh, but one of those fronts is to... Uh, as, as Lincoln said, we always have to rededicate ourselves to the Declaration. Yeah. Every every generation has to rededicate it, it themselves to the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Every every generation. And I look around right now and just wonder, hmm, are we? Is, yeah. is that the business we're we're at right now? Um, it seems like there's some for, some some voices 
that are taking us a different direction. Well, you know, one fundamental thing, and I was thinking of Reagan's last speech, which you mentioned, John, is people have to know what those principles are. I'm not sure they're being taught. Right. But as 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 uh, as Moynihan said, am I embarrassed to speak for a less than perfect democracy? No, I'm not. Find me a better one. You said uh, there are a lot of people out there who will, you know, do this success sequence. And I was just thinking in this very current situation, people are talking about the opportunities in the stock market coming out of COVID. What about the opportunities for the young and energetic? We're hearing about all these places. I don't know if this thoughts occurred to you guys, but all these places that are looking for people. Yeah. It's paying bonuses and so on. And a lot of people are staying home getting the government check. But if you're interested in able-bodied and, you know, want to improve your life, you got some fabulous job opportunities out there. Yeah, I heard a, I heard a report. Would you tell long. me about the truckers? Would you tell me about yeah, truckers? Yeah, yeah, I heard a report not long ago that they're 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 begging for truck drivers, and that uh, I hope I don't get the figure wrong, but uh, they were interviewing a, a fellow who was an owner of a of a trucking company. He said, um, you know, he said I've got people in their you know twenties right now who can easily make three hundred thousand dollars a year right now driving a truck. Uh, we are so desperate for for truckers. Three hundred thousand dollars a year. Three hundred thousand yeah. a year in your twenties. Yeah. Three hundred thousand a year in your twenties. Yeah. Now that I'm sure that's not everybody's. I'm sure not everybody's making that. But he he said right now at this time we are so you know in need of truckers that we are paying huge premiums. And, you know, we heard another report of a restaurant that was paying a thousand dollar bonus signing bonuses for wait staff. They're yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. and, and, you know, the American economy is so resilient. Um, and again and again offers so many opportunities uh, to people. And that's, that's another thing that I, I think that, 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 you know, it's just not being taught. Remember today is that this country has lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Millions. yeah both here and around the world, the American economic engine is something that we should be immensely proud of. Um, and we can keep doing that. And that's the kind of thing that, that, that gives me hope going forward. But we have, but if we're, if we're bad mouthing the country the whole time, uh, as, as again, you know, some voices out there seem to be doing, then, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't help Let's Let's put it that way. You're listening to the Bill Bennett show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. That does it for today's show. Catch up on previous episodes of the show. Go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.